Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Nanochomp Marketing Strategy and Analytics. We help product and marketing teams solve problems and experience growth using data and approachable AI. Visit nanochomp.com to learn more. Hey everyone, on this episode of Soundbites, we had a really great conversation with Adam Coffey. He's an entrepreneur, experienced leader, private equity expert, and best-selling author. His latest book, Empire Builder, it's a must-read for anyone trying to scale their business. So I thought the conversation was really interesting. Derek, what'd you think? I think it was great. Adam gave really great advice. He started talking about servant leadership. Uh, he went into how you grow your business using private equity, some of the misconceptions there, and some of the things to look out for. He talks about having your data systems in place to make the right decisions as a leader. And then he goes into the advice he would give a younger version of himself, as well as work-life balance and order of life priorities. Really great episode. Yeah, I, li I like the part at the end there where he talks about work-life balance and the importance of family. Um, I think a lot of people who are starting their own business or even just trying to climb that corporate ladder you sometimes forget about the most important thing that's family. And he talks about how he's how he's prioritized that in his life. I thought it was really great insight. Yeah. And gets rid of the misconception that you need to sacrifice everything and focus only on work in order to be successful. So really great advice there. One of the other parts I liked is when he talks through the transition a founder must take between being a player to being a coach and how to effectively accomplish that. Yeah, I like that too. And we won't give it all away here. So take a listen to the episode and as always, let us know what you think. Thanks so much. And here's Adam. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Soundbites. Today on the podcast, we are so excited to have Adam Coffey. Adam is an entrepreneur, experienced leader, private equity expert, and best-selling author. His latest book, Empire Builder, is a must-read for anyone trying to take their business to eight, nine, or even 10 figures. So we're really glad to have you on today. Thanks so much for joining, Adam. Well, thank you for having me, Lauren. Derek, good to see you. Hello to all your listeners out there. Yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. And the way we like to kick things off um, typically is, you know, walk us through your background a bit. You know, what set you down this path to being an entrepreneur, leader, PE expert? All that yeah, sure. Well, you know, as, as uh, Derek and I were talking, we both grew up in the same area uh, of Michigan, um, you know, and early, early days, I always wanted to be, you know, a professional athlete when I grew up. Well, that, that, that path was taken away from me when I blew out a knee, you know, playing hockey mm -hmm. as a kid. But you know, so ultimately, I tell people I meet for the first time kind of some you know things about me that shape my life. Number one, uh, served in the U.S. military, so served in the Army uh, as a young guy, and uh, that grounding, you know, learning about uh, you know I'll call it servant leadership, uh, teamwork, discipline, um, you know, the, the, those kind of created the base of, of of the rest of my career. If I didn't serve there like a thousand years ago, I, I never make it, you know, where, where I, I ultimately wound up going, you know, and am today. So that was number one. Number two, uh, engineering made me a meticulous planner. Uh, I'm also a pilot. Pilots don't take off unless they know where they're going. So if I translate that to an entrepreneurial journey, I'm building companies with exits in mind. Uh, and I, I blame being a pilot for that thinking about reverse engineering, you know, call, call it a, a hold period or the building of a company. Third, I, I worked at Jack uh, or at GE. I spent 10 years at GE during the Jack Welsh era. I call it the Camelot era of GE. Tech doesn't exist yet. GE is number one on the Fortune 500 list. Jack is the world's most admired CEO. That company is growing so fast, it's doubling in size every 2.8 years. And uh, mm -hmm. my 10 years at GE and, and working with Jack taught me how to run a business. Um, and then 
Then next up, you know, I spent 21 years as a CEO building three national companies for nine different private equity sponsors. Uh, I, uh, I'm a buy and build guy. I bought 58 companies, put them together. I have billions of dollars in successful exits. Um, you know, along the way, I started teaching in uh, executive MBA programs, loved the giving back. That led me to writing the books, which are, are up there. I'm blessed to have three number one bestsellers. Uh, and and I love doing that. Wasn't really making any money. I was making a whole bunch of money as a CEO, but I wasn't having fun anymore. After 21 years, I needed a new challenge. And so two years ago, I pivoted out of the seat, you know, out of my CEO seat and said, world, I'm done being a CEO. You know, and uh, I started a consulting business. I work more hours today than I ever did as a CEO. I make more money than I did as a CEO, uh, but I'm having fun. And so that's the difference. It kind of reinvigorated my, my career. I'm, I'm 59 and uh, I wanted to do something I was enjoying. And so for me, I've dedicated the rest of my career towards helping entrepreneurs um, be successful. I wanted to impact multiple companies at a time with, uh, without having the tactical execution responsibilities of just running one. And so uh, I'm, I'm now teaching seminars globally. I'm writing books. I'm consulting. I still work with private equity. I help them evaluate investments and uh, I work with their, their CEOs and I coach their leadership teams. Uh, I'm an investor in PE funds. But I'm, uh, I'm really focused on trying to help as many entrepreneurs as possible attain success. Yeah, I love that. Love that mission quite a bit. And I think um, a few things you mentioned on that path to becoming a CEO and then transitioning from your CEO role to what you're doing now. One thing that stands out to me is like, what do you think the misconceptions are? Are people that are working their way into leadership and then what they realize leadership is when they actually get there? What do you think some of the misconceptions about that role is? So I, I think as a young guy climbing the corporate ladder, you know, it was uh, it was more about me and, and less about we. And I, I think ultimately, you know, as I finally, you know, call it, you know, reached the, the, the pinnacle and started started running companies. You know, I recognized that really what I am is I'm the guy who articulates the vision. I create the shared aspiration. But I got to hire a great cast of characters to surround myself with because I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. And, and so I need people who are tactical experts in many different disciplines. And, uh, and I, re I really learned that, you know, being a CEO and building a successful company is a team sport. And it's not about me. It's about what that team can accomplish. And you know, if, if you assemble the right cast of characters, it's like, a, you know, being an athlete, you know, when we were growing up and talking about that, you know, it's like you want to win the championship. You don't just need a superstar. You need a team. You need a team of players that can gel and work, work well together, you know, towards a, a shared aspiration. And so I think that was probably the biggest lesson climbing, climbing the corporate ladder in the Fortune 500 world. It's like, OK, you know, it's about my success or my contribution. And as I get up to the more senior ranks, it's 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 not about what I'm doing. It's about what I can can do, you know, what the team can do. And can I assemble the right cast of characters? And I, I think there's a lot of the lessons to be learned there for entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs to be successful have to be anal retentive control freaks when they're running a smaller business. But as they get bigger, they got to learn how to let go and they got to learn how to be the conductor of the orchestra 
rather than the first chair player of each section, you know, and they, they've got to learn to let go and articulate a vision and, and drive a team and manage process instead of, you know, tactical things. And, and so I think that's, that's probably my biggest lesson. I think it seems challenging as an entrepreneur who built something, you know, like it's their baby. And then to have to sort of transition that role from being a control freak to being a team player, to being more of a coach and someone who's empowering Let's others. unpack that because I think, Lauren, that's, that's, that's a key. And it's mm-hmm. a key to being able to scale. So I bought 58 companies. You know, one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, most of those companies were around 20, 30 million dollars in, uh, in revenue. And, you know, the last empire I built, I, I put 23 of those together on top of a platform I was running, sold it multiple times, multiple hold periods. Um, but what I noticed about these entrepreneurs is, is that, you know, first of all, let's, let's talk statistics. There's 33 million small businesses in America. And those businesses are defined as 500 employees or less. They represent 99.9% of all companies in the country. They employ half the country's workforce, yet only 7% get to a million dollars in revenue. And only 4% of those get to 10 million in revenue. And so success and of of those 33 million small companies, only 40% are profitable. 30% break even, 30% lose money. And over half of them will be gone in five years. And so when you when you think about how stacked against success the odds are, I call it the the unintentional arrogance of success. When I beat the odds and I get past a million and I get past 10 million, I got there by being an anal retentive control freak who focused on the minutiae, you know, and making sure everything was done. I call it the happy meal effect. And so Every, every process, every transaction, I've got my arms around everything. And what happens is I get to 20, 30 million of revenue and I run out of bandwidth and I can no longer be that. And so the entrepreneurs who can reach the gearbox and shift gears and go from being the anal retentive control freak to conductor of the orchestra, they now all of a sudden break through that $30 million ceiling. Those are the companies that can get to a hundred million and, and beyond. And it's, it's right there at 20, 30 million in revenue where I saw 58 different entrepreneurs kind of top out. And I'm the guy who takes companies where they've topped out and then I take them someplace different. But I think that's the key to success is learning how to, once you've learned how to be successful, it's learning how to reprogram and make that shift so that you can attain a higher level of success. And I think that's really hard for so many people we see it over and over again because people have done something and they've gotten so much success and they know this is the play that works. This is what works. And I know it works because it's worked. And then they get these frustration walls where it's just not working anymore, but they know if they keep doing it, maybe if I just do it harder, it'll work, but that doesn't necessarily happen. It doesn't translate into the next level of growth. It's a couple other things then that, that, that happens is so, you know, again, that going back to that, that accidental arrogance of success or unintended arrogance of success, you know, a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs think about monetizing their business or selling their business as being a one and done event. You know, I'm going to say you know, I built it. I'm 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 God's gift. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to take my wheelbarrow full of gold and I'm going to go home because I would never stay as a minority shareholder. Heaven forbid, you know, if if there was somebody else who was really calling the shots because I'm the only one who knows this business. And and I, I call that first sale as the first rest stop on the wealth creation highway. It's not the end of the road. It's just the first pause. 
And when I bring in that partner, I may give up control, but now I've gotten one wealth event. Why go start something new and have all the risk and the scale and all that? I keep I can become a rollover investor. I can keep running the business that I already know and built. And now using institutional capital, I can grow faster. I can actually get more aggressive towards growth. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I always use Jeff Bezos as the example. So Jeff Bezos, one of the richest people in the world, I think today he's number three. Um, and, and he only owns 12 percent of Amazon, which means that 88 percent of Amazon is owned by somebody else. Look, if it works for one of the world's most wealthiest, it can work for a small entrepreneur who's got 20, 30 million in revenue, too. So, you know, taking on partnerships and being strategic about growth and when to make the first exit, you know, and recognizing that there's multiple exits to be had as we're building this this business. I think those are some of the keys to, to entrepreneurial success. Kind of 2.0. Once you've succeeded in version 1.0, getting getting the the initial scale, you know, there's so many more lessons to learn. You know, to 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 be one of those rare companies. So we talked about 33 million small companies, you know, in in this country. But there's only 3,000 companies on the planet that have a billion dollars in revenue. So success seems to top out early, and large is rare. And it's the difference in skill sets, you know, between those two that are really the keys to achieving something that's truly rare. I think um, when we think through that, a lot of people maybe don't know how or don't understand when to start looking for institutional capital. Like, when do I start engaging a PE partner? How do I even go about that? What should I do to structure those deals? And then how should I leverage that into the next rest stop? So in, in my opinion, at least, as a guy who spent decades working with private equity firms, there's what I call natural swim lanes. So I've got $6 trillion in capital and all of that capital. So the largest funds that everybody's heard of, like KKR, Apollo, Carlisle, they've got funds that are 10 to $30 billion in size. And then there's 6,000, 7,000 firms, you know, all up and down, some small, some big. Well, they all do the same thing. They all invest six to 8% of their capital in a fund in any one company. So by virtue of that, someone who's got a $10 billion fund or a $30 billion fund doesn't buy small companies. It would take them a thousand years to put all that money to work. So big firms buy big companies, small firms buy small companies. And there's been this creation of what I call five natural swim lanes of private capital. And so recognizing how that private capital works, how it's structured is, uh, is, is paramount to our success as entrepreneurs. So I tell people there's really two natural exit points when I'm first starting out. So again, pilot, I know my destination. I'm either headed to, you know, I'm going from zero to 4 million of EBITDA or I'm going to 10 million of EBITDA. Those are the two natural exit points. The first ones, you, yes, you can sell companies at a million dollars of EBITDA or less. Companies sell every day like that. Uh, I helped a, an entrepreneur sell one earlier this year that had 1.1 million of, of earnings. He sold it for eight times. He got 8.8 .8 million. He was thrilled. But real institutional capital, that is real firms that actually raise real funds from a universe of, of limited partners, you know, the traditional model, they started about $4 million of EBITDA. Three to $4 million is where they start investing. And those buyers over a five-year hold period are going to take companies up to about 12 to $15 million 
of EBITDA. And then they're going to sell them to someone who takes it up to about 40 million of EBITDA. Then someone who goes up to 80, 90, 100, and then 100 to 200, 200 to public. These are the natural exit points. So if you've got 4 million of EBITDA or you're at two, you know, you build to four and you're going to start, you know, attracting what I call the right universe of buyers. And so, you know, if I just take a multiple that would work for a lot of different industries, I could say if I built the 4 million of EBITDA, I'm going to get about an eight times multiple. I'm going to sell my business for 30 million to 40 million, depending on industry. But if I take it to 10, I got a nine figure exit. I'm looking at 120 to 150 million now because I'm rarer. I've climbed the pyramid. You know, I've gotten bigger. I'm attracting a bigger crowd of buyers. There's fewer assets to buy. So I'm going to be rewarded with a higher multiple. So if I'm an entrepreneur, unless I'm going to go early, I'm going to go to 4 million of EBITDA or I'm going to go to 10 million of EBITDA is kind of the two minimum sizes where I'm going to then start to entertain my exits. And, and, and so what I've been doing now as a, as a coach, I work with, with entrepreneurs in these different size categories and I'm helping them get to that level. I started working with a company about 18 months ago. They were under 2 million of EBITDA. Today, they're crossing 10 million of EBITDA. Only 18 months later, we started doing a buy and build. We started buying. You know, I'm teaching entrepreneurs how to do what I was doing on a large you know, stage with institutional capital. I'm teaching entrepreneurs how to do that at a, at a, at a smaller level you know, on a smaller scale. But like that company now, we're, we're hiring a banker. You know, we're headed to, you know, headed to the market and you know, we'll sell for somewhere around 150, 160 million. On a company that had less than two million of EBITDA, you know, eighteen months ago, so you know how big we get is a function of how big we dream, and then how good we are at the tactical execution, the shifting gears, you know, and then and then learning, you know, learning the steps to take. No, that's 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 incredible. Like going from two million to a huge exit over eighteen months is really really outstanding. And then in your latest book. I think one of the points you made that really stuck with us was something you probably intuitively know, but then when you put a framework around it, we grab the bigger companies can command bigger multiples because the funds that are being able to invest in them are, are larger with more capital. And then there are fewer of them. So we started thinking about that. And one of the recent examples we saw of that gone wrong was a company called Farfetch. They started buying assets, buying assets, buying assets to get themselves big for an exit but the assets they were purchasing were probably not necessarily in line with their overall corporate strategy. They were just trying to get put on mass. They were cultivating mass to get a bigger, um, bigger multiple. And I think that's one of the, the, the mistakes or, or risks, right? So if you're yeah. going to do a buy and build, you know, I, I tell people before you buy anything, you know, it's all about strategy and it's all about understanding what good looks like before I even start looking for companies. What, what's the strategy I'm, I'm adopting? You know, what am I trying to accomplish? What type of company is the perfect acquisition that's going to allow me to, to, you know, to hit that strategy and make it work? And it's like, I think too often, even at the PE level, I see PE firms do this a lot too. It's like, I buy for the sake of buying. I buy because I want to bulk up, but I haven't put the strategy in. And I don't know what good looks like. I call it shiny penny syndrome. I just start chasing anything. You know, any, everything looks good. I overlook all the flaws. I don't have a strategy. And so I'm collecting assets. And, you know, you don't get rewarded with a high multiple when a buyer detects that you're a loose collection of assets 
not an integrated company with a growth strategy that you're pursuing. So I, I think we have to be real careful up front, you know, in a buy and build strategy or when we're thinking about M&A as a growth strategy. We really need to focus on why am I doing this? What's the strategy? What am I trying to accomplish? And then what does good look like? And only buy good companies is another piece of advice I would I would give people. Um, you know, you think about baseball, Ty Cobb, you know, highest batting average of all baseball players in the history of the game. And I think his career average is in the 340s. Uh, he had some years over 400. Well, that means that he struck out, you know, or made an out like six out of 10 times. If you're doing a buy and build as a business, as an entrepreneur, you better be batting 980 plus. You bet, you know, out of 20 acquisitions, you can afford one bad one, but you can't afford to go, you know, to, to, to buy bad companies. I always tell people only buy good companies with good reputations, with excellent leadership, with great cultures that align with your own thinking. We don't have time in life for a fixer upper, you know, kind of buy and build. We want to buy good companies, put them together and let the naturally occurring arbitrage, which is the difference in multiple will sell at, you know, versus the multiple we're buying small companies at and putting them together. We'll let that naturally occurring arbitrage create our, our profit or our upside. We don't want to be in the business of fixing other people's messes. Um, it, it, it'll detract you from your entrepreneurial journey. And there's one thing a rich person cannot buy, no matter how much money, even Jeff Bezos cannot buy, and that's time. And mm -hmm. so we only want to buy good companies when we're doing mergers and acquisitions. Uh, something that I'm thinking about as you're, as you're talking about these processes, like you've been working with this company for the last 18 months, taking it from 2 million to 18. I think that's exciting. Um, what does working with you look like in that capacity? You know, you, you're working with somebody who is so attached to this thing. They probably acknowledge that they need help because they wouldn't be contacting you otherwise, but I'm sure there's like some ego there and, and maybe some attachment. Oh, there's so always ego there, but you know, I, I, I would say, you know, unless you've had billion dollar exits, I win. Right. right. So right. I have credibility of having done it. And I think when we work with coaches or we work with, with, uh, you know, with mentors, you know, oftentimes it's like, okay, are they teaching me from a position of theory or have they walked the walk and been on the road, you know, that I'm seeking to travel. And I think what adds credibility for me with a lot of entrepreneurs that I work with, is just simply that I'm not teaching theory. I'm teaching as a guy who's built three, you know, national empires and has billions of dollars in exits and has bought 58 companies and put them together. So I'm a practitioner as opposed yeah. to just someone who's teaching theory. And there's nothing wrong with theory. You know, we, we've all had great college professors, you know, somewhere in our, 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 our background who, who really helped us or shaped us or helped us, you know, with our, our thinking. So it's not all about, you know, about just practical experience. I, I think there's a place in the, for both. But because I, I have built companies, you know, I've had thousands of employees, I've had billion dollar exits. I, I think I have a lot of credibility. And the fact that I started at the bottom, you know, in, in the mm -hmm. service, I was a private, you know, E1 in the United States Army. I look up and I saw bubble gum on the bottom of somebody's shoe. That's how low I was. And I've held every job a person can hold on an organizational chart, you know, including spending 21 years as a CEO up at the top, you know, and not once, not just a one hit wonder. Multiple industries, multiple companies, multiple ownership periods. So I think it's credibility that helps diffuse, you know, call it that that arrogance of success that somebody has. One of the things I really liked from your latest book 
you talked through the importance of finding markets that are excessively fragmented. And I think a lot of people overlook those. They just walk right past them. And one example we have is um, some of our good friends own a, a pest control company. And when we think through what they've done on the surface, when they're starting it, we're like, you're going you're gonna to kill bugs. But then they have five locations and then they're in 10 states and then they got 20 locations and then the revenue is there's some attractive. multi-billion dollar PE back rollups and pest control. So let me tell you something else I mentioned in the book, why I, why I love that particular industry for one. Um, so we want, if we're going to build a, a, if we're an entrepreneur, we're starting out, what do we build? Or I'm, I'm a, a executive MBA and I'm graduating. I'm going to, I'm going to work with a search fund. I'm going to go buy something. What am I going to buy? And I, I focus on, you know, a framework for finding a higher probability of success. So it starts with needs versus wants. You know, if, if there's a hole in my roof and it's raining outside and there's water falling on my head, I need my roof fixed. Um, I want accessories for my monster truck. You know, my wife wants a new outfit, you know, because we're going to a, a, a wedding or something. But, but, you know, there's needs versus wants. We want to build empires that are focused on needs, not wants. In a bad cycle, you know, a recession, you know, in a downturn, people can delay spending on wants indefinitely, but we can't delay spending on needs. So if we want to be insulated from the ups and downs of the economies, we focus on needs, not wants. Next up, we want to focus on recurrent revenue streams versus project related. So first of all, bug control, you know, or, or pest control. If I live in Texas or Florida, you know, Arizona, you know, Southern California, pick a, pick a place with giant bugs. You know, it's like I need pest control. That's a need, not a want. When stuff starts coming through the walls into my house and my wife is freaking out and my daughter's freaking out, it's like <laughs> that's a need. All right. But recurrent pest control, I sign a contract with my customer. Every month I hit their credit card for my monthly fee. And in pest control, we only come out once a quarter. So every month I bill all my clients, instant collection. I've got recurrent revenue, it's contracted revenue. Most people, I've been in this house for three years, I've got pest control contracts. I forget about it. You know, it's just hitting my credit card and, you know, and they're coming out and providing the service. Thank you. Um, and so it's a recurrent revenue stream. And so now when I'm, a, I'm, I'm spending time marketing to customers, it's not a one and done sale, but I'm actually getting a recurrent revenue stream that's going to last for a long time. So now my efforts are more around growth, less around keeping revenue. If I have a company that is, is not recurrent revenue, it's project-based, every time I'm done, I'm looking for now an entirely new set of customers to replace the ones I just did a project for because they're done and I don't have a recurrent revenue stream. So needs versus wants, recurrent versus recurring or recurrent versus project-based, all of these things help you know, help me with valuation. But the reason we want fragmented is if I'm a small entrepreneur and maybe I am going to do a buy and build and I'm going to put some companies together, heavy fragmentation, tens of thousands of companies in an industry, you know, in the country means that there aren't enough buyers to drive up the prices. And so small companies are going to trade for a small multiple and as I get bigger, I'm rarer, I trade for a higher multiple and that arbitrage is created, you know, results in a higher level of profitability. You know, and so I've run companies and built billion dollar businesses in what I call moderately fragmented industry, which after a decade of a few companies buying everybody, 
we're like playing Pac-Man and all of a sudden all the dots are gone and we're looking at each other. And it's like, now what, you know? So heavy fragmentation ensures the success that small companies sell for low prices. The big companies are rarer. They're going to sell for a higher price. And if I want to combine some doing a buy and build, fragmentation is my friend. And it's the key to me being, you know, to, to, to generating outsized returns for my efforts. Yeah, I think that's, it's a really good strategy. And I think it's something that people overlook, especially when people are looking to create a startup. They want to build an AI startup. They want to build a technology startup. They want to build these high risk, potentially high reward companies that have actually very, very low probability of success and scale. And they walk right past really attractive industries that can create sustainable revenue. Yeah. So let's talk about sexy versus not sexy, right? So my first company was a medical services company. So that was a little bit sexy. But my second empire was a commercial laundry company, not very sexy. And my third was an HVAC company, not very sexy either. You know, but the companies and industries like pest control, you mentioned landscape maintenance, you know, HVAC, plumbing, electrical, as you mentioned, industries like that, that they aren't very sexy. They're also very much in need Mm -hmm. and goes back to everybody wants to try to create something new. And I think Warren Buffett taught us, you don't have to create something new, take something boring, you know, that's a need that's recurrent and, you know, make your investment in in something that you know and understand. You don't have to create the next thing. You can take the old thing, you know, that's, that's out there. And right now in this time in history for entrepreneurs, it is the biggest wealth transfer in the history of mankind is the baby boomer generations are all aging out. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies out there where the founder is now retiring, leaving, you know, dying. And there's uh, there, there's this transfer going on. It's a great time to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know if you had a question. Derek. No, no, I was, I was going to let you. I didn't want to, I didn't want to step on you when you were coming <laughs> play in. This, Sorry. You play this game. I'm trying not to step over the other person. Um, I had a question as I, as you were talking through your history, you know, you mentioned that you're a GE for 10 years and then 21 years as a, as a CEO. So, but you've never had more fun and you've never enjoyed your work. And you've never worked more than what you're doing now. So how do you, um, you know, how, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it really just helping these, these companies grow? Is it like, how do you work past the grind? Because we, we work in consulting too. We understand how much time and, and how much work it is, but, um, you know, what, what is making, what is making this job your favorite? Well, so, you know, I, I, I've achieved some level of financial success in my life. And Mm -hmm. so, Money is not necessarily the driving factor for me anymore. I, I'm very much cognizant of the fact that you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fairly religious person. I'll, I'll tell you, it's like, you know, I'm blessed. I feel a need that I need to give back, you know, and I need to have justified the wealth that I created by helping others. And so I volunteer. I work at my daughter's school. I, I, I'm the planning and zoning commissioner for my town. You know, I, I volunteer of my time, um, you know, I still speak at universities and, and I, I, I'm not paid for that work. And, but, and I'm, I'm very, you know, we talked about my, my three books, you know, I donate a hundred percent of my royalties to charity, you know, 100%, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars all donated to charity. And so I, uh, you know, I'm blessed. And, you know, but when I think about what the grind that I got tired of after 21 years, it was like, you know, I have thousands of employees. He said, she said, you know, he touched me. She said that it's like, you know, all the crap 
that goes with running, you know, call it a company and uh, tactical execution after 21 years. It's like, I'm bored, you know, and <laughs> so what I get to do now is I, I, I get to I get to take the cumulative strategy and, and learning and I help people with strategy, but they're responsible for tactical execution. And I've also learned and recognized that the, the tools for growth and bending the growth curve and building empires is really generic. And so when I partner with an entrepreneur you know, or a PE firm, it's like, and, and they buy a company and there's an entrepreneur there, they're experts in the field. I'm an expert in growing big companies. And when you put my strategy as to, as to how, what the tools are and how to implement them, but then I make them responsible for tactical execution, the minutia, then that gives me the freedom to now work. I'm working in like 15 different industries right now. Virtually all of them, I was never a CEO in and we're having, you know, we're having success. So I'm learning how to partner with people it's, it's new, it's engaging. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. And, and I think the one big lesson that I've learned, you know, uh, I get this question a lot and uh, I might be going out of order here, but when people say, Adam, if you could live your life over again, what's the, what's the one thing you would change? And, and to me, you know, the one thing I would have changed, I would have quit being a CEO a decade earlier. You know, when you're a CEO building a big company, I got blinders on. I, I have to ignore the world because I'm focused on on my shareholders and, and my my culture and my company. And I'm building one thing. But two years out of the seat with the blinders off, the opportunities that exist, you know, that are coming my way, you know, have been just a lot of fun and, and fascinating. And I told people when I first left, my biggest paydays were probably behind me now. And. <laughs> You know, but now that I've got two years with no blinders, again, I'm making more money today than I did as a CEO. And I made a lot of money as a CEO. So what am I learning? I'm, I'm learning that my biggest paydays are still ahead of me. And I wish I would have pivoted out of the CEO seat earlier, you know, and taken my wisdom gained through making every mistake on the book. Mind you, I'm not the, the, the smartest guy on the planet who made no mistakes. It's because I've spent 35 years making mistakes. I can write books and help you from making the same mistakes, which is, is kind of been fun. So for, for me, that's what gets me up in the morning. I get up at 4 a.m. every day. And between the hours of 4 and 6.30, that's me time. You know, the world's sleeping. You know, my, my family's asleep. That's my quiet time. All my books are written between 4 a.m. and 6.30. You know, all of my strategic planning for myself, my family, you know, my, my own empire. You know, all of that's going on very early you know, and then I get ready for the day and my, my, you know, my, my actual calendar starts at 7 a.m. Great study for your listeners out there. Uh, if you Google Harvard Business Review, successful people, time management, you'll bring it up. They, they did a review of uh, very successful people. Namely, these were all CEOs. How do, uh, nothing to do with how they got there. You are there. How do you manage your time? And I think the results of that can be very uh, eye-opening because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are so busy being busy that they aren't taking the time to be strategic and they become a piece on the chessboard rather than watching over the top of the chessboard and thinking about strategy. And I think one of the most shocking learnings for me was very, very successful people calendar up to 25% of their time to be alone and to be strategic. And it's not about how many hours we work, it's about how impactful we are with the hours that we choose to work. And 
What's our framework for thinking strategic every day? And, you know, there are times we have to be tactical, but most entrepreneurs are so busy being busy that they're, they're not being strategic. They're too in the weeds. And so I thought that that was a great study for your listeners too. That's a good one. We're going to check it out because that's our, that's been our experience too, is that so many people are so focused on, I have to do this because this is what I do, like the tactical execution that they don't even get to think about, execute or test the, I wonder if, like those, I wonder if questions, I wonder if moments that just get completely pushed to the side. Um, Something you stated about taking the blinders off reminded me, we repeatedly in all the businesses that we go into, everything we touch invariably, no matter the size, whether it's a fortune 500 tech company or a smaller um, direct to consumer brand, all of their data systems, we haven't walked into one where their data was good. Right. The yeah. data they were collecting was bad. The way they were utilizing it was, um, let's just call it bad. You know, like I, I won't get too flowery, but effectively bad. And that was always our first step because we always thought we were going to, oh, we'll come in on third base. We'll help them take it home and we're good to go. And then our flaw where our, we were just wrong in our philosophy was we got to jump all the way back to go. And what data are you collecting? Why are you collecting it? What are you doing? Has that been your experience too? Absolutely. So when, when, I, when I'm in a business or running a business or working with an entrepreneur, one of the first things that we focus on is, first of all, what's the goal and objective? I'm a pilot. I'm taking off. Where, where am I going to land? You know, what are we trying to accomplish here? What's the game we're playing? Once we identify that, then it's what's the strategy that's going to take us from where we are today to that destination? So what are the five or six initiatives that we're going to focus on that are, are going to drive us there? And then I get to who in my organization is going to be responsible for each of these you know, initiatives. And then it goes right to measurement systems. How am I going to keep score? How do I know if I'm winning? You know, how do I know if, 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 my, if my five or six initiatives are, are, are actually working? You know, and you know, I, I remember Jack you know, always would say, look, you know, if you can't measure it, then ignore it. You know, it's like if you can't put a measurement in place to, to understand whether or not you're winning, you don't know if the work you're doing is having the right impact. And if you can't measure it, then ignore it for now. Maybe the right initiative, but we can't address it today because I don't have the sophistication to deal with that. And oftentimes when I got into a business, you know, to start, I'll tell you that that the I feel like a captain on a big ship and I walk up on the dat, you know, on the on the bridge. I'm looking at the dash with all the dials and gauges. And I'm like, nothing works. Hello. It's like we're sailing in the fog. We don't know where we're going. The radar's broken and none of my gauges are working. And so the first thing I have to do is even if it's rudimentary, is come up with some type of a, a, a measure a measurement system or a KPI, a network of KPIs, so that I can at least start tracking basic productivity measures. Good example. I get into a company that has like eight or nine different disparate systems, no ERP in place. It's like they're doing data entry eight, nine times. If I ask the same question of each department, I get a different answer. There's no source of truth. Everything's garbage. You know, and so I walk into HR. It's like, do we know how many employees we have? Yes, I, I, I know. You know, I know I, I'm, and I'm pretty accurate. Yeah. OK, good. You know, I can walk into accounting. Do we know how much revenue we have in total? Yes, I'm good. You know, do we know what our earnings are? You know, I hope we do because we have to pay taxes. You know, yes. So I got like these three things. Okay, I can immediately say, what's my revenue per employee? What's my net profit per employee? I now have a basic measuring system. And so while I'm investing in technology and maybe taking time, 
to fix all these data systems, you know, data problems that, that, that you're talking about, I can at least start putting in some kind of, of basic metrics in place so that we know if the ship is pointed in the right direction. You know, and and then as time goes by and we were making investments and we're cleaning house, you know, we get a lot more sophisticated and data helps us. I'm always technology driven and data driven. And, and so I'm always investing in technology because I, I think it's a key driver of productivity. And that's a key driver of margin improvement and profitability. And usually when I'm in a company, it's a turnaround is where I'm starting with something that doesn't work very well. Otherwise, they wouldn't have needed a new CEO, you know, to begin sure. with. And so I'm going in to fix something and then scale it and, and build it, build it to a large size quickly. You know, that's that's kind of my, my, my role. So I think data and measuring, you know, has got to be central to everything we do. And if I can go on one tangent for just a minute, I think when we think about the types of companies, you've been talking about pest control. So let's go back to pest control for a minute. So let's say I've got 500 employees. You know, I'm a big company. I'm very successful. I've got hundreds of vehicles out there and I'm going to buy 20 new vehicles this year. Well, who do I give those 20 vehicles to? Usually it would be the pest control dude who's got the oldest truck with the most mileage. Not in my world. Who's got the best metrics? Who's producing the most revenue? Who's got the highest customer satisfaction? Who's got the fewest callbacks because they did a poor job? Show me the best employee who's hitting all their metrics. And that person's getting a new truck every year when I buy new trucks. And the person who's off their metrics gets the hand-me-down dog of the fleet. You know, And it's, so I not only put the metrics in place so I can keep score, but then I also make these same metrics visible to all and then you know, central to how I think about raises, uh, reductions in force. If I have to restructure something, you know, who am I going to invest in, you know, and who am I going to promote? It's like all of these things are, are central to, to building success. It's really funny you mentioned that because they have, um, they have one for each office. That's always the new one and it's black and it's got a sweet livery on it and they call it the tarantula. And that's for the best, uh, the best employee in the, in the branch, which is, which is kind of funny. But to your, your other point about data, we end up quoting the Cheshire cat more than we care to admit. And it's like, if you don't know where you're going, any direction will get you there. And then we yeah. always have, we end up starting there pretty frequently with, with client engagements, which is um, interesting. We should brain brainstorm about that afterwards. So what is what does that future look like for you now? Like we see we're seeing AI coming into the, the the world, changing things the way the invention of the internet changed things. So what are we seeing that look like for a future perspective for what you're doing? So I, I think AI ultimately will be transformational, and I, and I think technology will continue to evolve. You know, we we you know driverless cars would have been a, a you know a, a a strange, you know, you know, Star Wars, you know, episode, you know, from 20, 30 years ago. It's like, you know, the, the technology is, is moving us faster and uh, social media is connecting us, you know, deeper you know, and, and it makes the global world shrink very, very small. So I expect that to continue. I, I think right now today, from an AI perspective, um, the world's playing with AI and, and there are great use cases that are already coming out. But I think we're still playing with it, much the way the first video game owners had Pong, you know, and hooked it up to their TVs and started playing with it. I think we're in the very early innings and stages, you know, of, uh, you know, of AI. So I think it ultimately will transform, but I don't think it'll replace, you know, call it human effort. I think it'll augment human effort. You know, I'm a writer, you know, and, uh, 
you know, I, I, you know, I play with chat GPT just like everyone else does. And frankly, I can look at any social media post and tell you in, in, a, in a microsecond whether it was written by chat GPT or a person. And I stopped using it. And I went back to, I've got my own message that I want to, to, to bring. And yes, that was fun and it was cute, but it's getting old now already. So I, I think you have, you have broad a desire for, for AI adaptation. But I think we're still all struggling. There are no AI experts today yet. And I think we're all learning and we're playing with the early innings you know, of this technology. But I think just, just as the last 40 years has, have evolved, you know, I'm 59. So it's not like I'm 100 you know, in nine. I'm only 59. So I, I, I'm 59. Hey, Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are still older than me and they're still blockbuster movies. So I'm not dead yet. But if I just look in my life, I go back to when I grew up in, in Birmingham, Michigan. You know, there were five channels on the TV. There were no video games. There were no VCRs, you know, and your listeners don't even know what the hell that is, you know, or, or DVDs or what's that, you know, no cable, no streaming, no internet, no desktop computers, no cell phones. We were in the dark ages, you know, and, and that was in my career, you know, professional lifetime. My first computer as an engineer was made by a company called Osborne. You know, and it cost like, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. It weighed 35 pounds. That was the first laptop. And the front folded down and had a little green screen and a keyboard. It's like technology has moved so fast just in my career. I can't even imagine how fast it'll move in the next 30 years. And so I, I think, you know, ideally as entrepreneurs, we need to embrace change. You know, we need to be flexible with new technologies. We need to look at and not ignore these new tools that are being developed, because I do think they will transform business over the next 30 years. So we want to be early adopters um, and, and have an open mind and not be closed minded. You know, my, my dad, who passed away recently at, at 89, he was the guy who retired never having had a computer on his desk. And I remember mm -hmm. him telling me, I'll never have a computer on my desk. You know, a few years into retirement, he's ordering cars on the Internet, you know, and it is it's like. You know, doing all his shopping on Amazon, I'm like, yeah, dad, there's that guy who would never have a computer on his desk. So we can't we can't be dinosaurs. We need to be progressive as we think about the changes in technology and how, how to adapt those. But I wouldn't I would say that we also don't want to be overly, overly reliant on it either. We want to maintain our creative edge and use these things as tools to enable us not to replace you know, creative thought. No, I love that answer. And and as we wrap up here, you already answered the question of what advice would you give your younger self? And I loved it because I think we've all been in certain roles that we probably should have quit earlier, but maybe just we weren't ready to at the time or didn't didn't have the foresight or understanding of, of why. But I have a curveball question just because you were mentioned you've mentioned your family a few times here. You were just talking about your dad. And I think in your bio, you said family is the most important. So and I, and I agree with you. Um, this is probably outside of your official consult, consulting capacity, but I'm sure you run into a lot of entrepreneurs who struggle with that balance of family and how to make, you know, how to make that successful while also building this business. So like on a personal level, what advice would you give to people who are trying to grow this business, trying to, to scale, but also, you know, not neglect or, or focus on the, the, the biggest business, which is your family? Yeah. So, I, you know, this is a lesson I think I learned through the school of hard knocks. Right. So if I look at what's my one real failure in life, it was the failure of my first marriage. You know, I laugh mm -hmm. about it and call it my starter marriage, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I have 
a couple older kids now from from that first marriage. And and I, you know, and it, it was a personal failure. And I, and I think about, you know, the lessons that I've learned when I was so busy being busy and climbing the corporate ladder and chasing success, that somewhere along the way, I lost the grounding that family, you know, is central to all that, that we do. And you know, I think about every company I've built, every company I've, I've run. And the day after I left, well, somebody new came in and took over, right? And so mm-hmm. all that time, passion, effort that we put into something really, other than that, that some people still follow me and say, Jesus, I miss him, or it was a, you know, he did great, or, you know, I, I miss those days. You know, thankfully it's not, boy, I'm glad that jerk is gone. You know, so I, I was known for building strong cultures. Um, but I, I think very quickly companies move on, you know, and it's like our importance to the world really to the business world is really insignificant. And, uh, you know, it's like the only reason I ever existed 50 years from now is is because my kids will then be adults and doing whatever it is that they're doing. That's the only reason I'm here today, um, because the business wars will be forgotten. And, you know, any accomplishments in climbing the corporate ladder or how much money I had in my bank account, you know, all, all of that stuff just goes away. And so I, I think it's, you know, we're, we're driven to find success. I think the earlier in life we can we can learn the lesson that that we need to be driven by and we need to redefine success and success needs to include you know our spouse our significant other our children and being there and being present you know it's like I I work in my daughter's school every week um you know I have a pretty high net worth and but I make the time you know to be in my daughter's school working you know working in that school I make time to give back in, in, at the city level. You know, I work with entrepreneurs. You know, I'm meeting with a client today for lunch that is no longer a client. You know, and so, uh, but but we're still connected. You know, and it's like it's, so. It's like from from my perspective, the human element, the family aspect. That's that's key to our success. And it's not about how hard we work. It's about how how effective we are when we are working. But knowing how to turn that off and to find that balance. Earlier you do that in life, the more successful and fulfilling I think your life will become. Yeah, I think that's that's really great advice. And I think when people are looking at a metric or they're looking at the outcome, they're like, oh, I can I can catch up with that later. I can catch up with that later. But the world's still rotating around you. And if you're not present, it'll um it'll leave you behind. Right. So those you know, think about a live event. You know, you can't go to a live event. You know, everyone's got their cell phone. We live life with one hand, you know, and then <laughs> we're always looking at what we're filming. We never see the live concert, you know, like I've stopped doing that. You know, it's like, you know, put the damn cell phone away and live in the moment, you know, enjoy life. 50 million other people are recording it for you. You're not going to miss anything. Don't worry about it. But it's like, be present and be present for your kids, you know, be, 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 be active in, you know, in, in your community and, and give back. And it's like, boy, it's a, it's a more fulfilling journey when you learn how to, how to, incorporate that. I think we all ultimately learn that lesson. You know, even Steve Jobs learned that lesson and yeah. on his deathbed, you know, acknowledged, you know, how much money I have just really doesn't matter when I'm going to be dead in two weeks, you know? And so I wish I would have done this. Well, don't be the person that wishes do it now. Hmm. And I think that is probably the best stopping point that we could have um, that was just gifted to us. So I think that's really, really great. Really good advice. Love the conversation. Adam, we really, really appreciate the time that you took to come today and um, have a chat with us. And we really look forward to having conversations in the future. Well, that's great. Nice to meet you both. And uh, thanks to your listeners for hanging out and, uh, and joining us in this conversation.
Thanks Thanks so much, Adam. Really appreciate it.